really knocks me out is a book that when you all are done reading it, you wish that the author that wrote it was a terrific friend of yours and you could call him up on a phone whenever you felt like it. That doesn't happen much. But what if I tell you that today University, powered by Ryzen Group of Institutions, I am Saurabh Jariyal, delighted to be your anchor for today's session. The Light of Asia, the poem that defined Buddha by none other than Mr. Jairam Ramesh in conversation with Mandira Nayana. You know what? Our speaker for today's session is an epitome of what a multi-diverse personality means. Someone whose dynamics are not just limited to the world of literature, but is also a widely celebrated personality with a vast knowledge in the field of politics and economics also. None other than the very talented, the very learned, and the very wise Mr. Jairam Ramesh. Sir was born on 9th April 1954 in an Indian economist and politician family belonging to the Indian National Congress. He is also a member of parliament representing Karnatak state in the Rajya Sabha. In July 2011, Sir was elevated to the Union Council of Ministers of India and appointed as the Minister of Rural Development and Minister of the new Ministry of Drinking Water and Sanitization. However, in the cabinet reshuffle in the October 2012, Sir was divested of the portfolio of Ministry of Drinking Water and Sanitization. He was previously the Indian Minister of State at the Ministry of Environment and Forest from May 2009 to July 2011. I can say that it's really an overwhelming portfolio to be reading. It's an honor to have you with us, sir. And this get even more delighted as we have a moderator for this session who will be, who'll be having a conversation with him. Let's begin. When talking about great leaders, who can moderate the session better than a very talented and experienced personality? Who's a writer herself? A moderator for today's session, Mandira Nayan. Man is a senior special correspondent at The V. She writes on foreign policy, culture, books, and history. In 2015, Man was awarded the Charles Valens Scholarship, and I think this conversation will take its own interesting course with her moderating this session. I once again welcome you, ma'am, and I welcome you, sir. Now, my dear audience, you are about to experience a conversation between two dynamic individuals, a worthy discussion you will never forget. Without skipping a moment, I humbly invite Ms. Mandira Naya, ma'am, to lead us ahead. Ma'am, the stage is all yours. Hi. Good morning and welcome, Mr. Ramesh. Um, the Light of Asia is a fabulous book. Um, I think one what is wonderful about it, I think, uh, is that um, and you know, this you can kind of go wrong with. I mean, so when the book arrived, it said it was the biography of a poem, and I don't think anybody's ever done a biography of a poem, so that was intriguing. But it was also a poem that was historic um and has had really a far-reaching effect on almost all the indian politicians so i really wanted to ask you straight off um i think you said you'd read the book when you were you read the poem when you were 15 right um so uh, can you talk about reading it 
you talk about why you chose to write the biography. Um, and uh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, I'm 67 now. So I read it when I was 15 years old, which is about over 50 years ago, uh, mm -hmm. when I was uh, beginning to read serious stuff, serious literature. I happened to read it because there was a copy lying around in my, at home. Uh, and uh, like every Indian, I was fascinated with the life of the Buddha. We are all taught about the Buddha in, in school, if you remember. There's yeah. always a chapter in some book or the other on Buddha and, you know, Devadatta and mm -hmm. Ananda and the life of Mardamana, Mahavira. These are all, you know, things that we grow up with. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, you know, this this book just stuck in my mind, you know, uh, and uh, it remained with me wherever I went over the long course of my career. Uh, and uh, whatever I did, whether I was in government, whether I was in politics, when I was studying abroad, uh, the figure of the Buddha was always part of my being. You know, his, mm. Buddha is part of every Indian's DNA. He's hardwired mm. into every Indian. We are all fascinated and captivated and enamored mm. by the life and personality of Buddha, even though we may not be Buddhists yeah. in the formal religious sense of the yeah. term. So it's that, you know, that that poem just remained with me. Mm. Uh, and last year, uh, I had written three biographies, uh, three mm. political biographies, Indira Gandhi, P.N. Haksar, and V.K. Krishnamanan. And I wanted to write something different. Mm. Uh, and so I just, you know, it just struck me that why not write the biography of this poem? Uh, because of the extraordinary influence the poem had. Uh, in America, in Europe, in England, and in all over Asia, you know, and mm. it really became a milestone uh, in our understanding of the life of the Buddha. So mm. this became Mandira, actually a two-in-one biography. Mm. Uh, it's a biography of a poem, but you cannot write the biography of a poem without writing the biography of the poet. Poet, yes. So the poet also was a very interesting man, Sir Edwin Arnold. Mm. Uh, he knew multiple languages, fluent mm. in Sanskrit. Uh, he spent two years in Pune between 1857 and 1860 as principal of the Pune College that later yes. became Deccan College. Uh, translated the Mahabharata, the Geet Govinda, the Hitopadesha. Mm. And the mm. Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. So Edwin Arnold was a very interesting man. He was a, a late 19th century British figure uh, who believed in British rule in India, but spent his time translating Sanskrit works uh, yeah. into English because he was fascinated with, with Indian culture. So this became a two-in-one biography, biography of the poem and biography of the poet. So I want to talk to you about that because I think when you talk about, you know, you say that he knew multiple languages, he knew Turkish, he knew Urdu, he knew like everything Latin. He also, you know, you talk about him translating the Gita and I would want, you know, you, um, you write that it was actually his translation that it's, that Gandhi took uh, was very, uh, was very enamored by, right? Um, so can you talk about that? And also well, the thing is that Gandhi was 20 years old and studying law in London when he became mm -hmm. a member of the London Vegetarian Society. Vegetarian Society, yeah. Uh, the, chair, the president of the society was an Englishman called Henry Salt, a great mm -hmm. popularizer of vegetarianism. The vice president of the society was Edwin Arnold, 
who was a vegetarian himself. And the secretary of the society was this young 20-year-old Gujarati studying law in London called Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi. Uh, and uh, Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi used to visit uh, a theosophical society, uh, you know, and they would read from Indian literature. And mm. one day they happened to be reading the Bhagavad Gita, not in Sanskrit, not in Gujarati, but in English. Mm. Uh, and they were reading this poem called the Song Celestial, which is mm. the English translation by Edwin Arnold of the Bhagavad Gita. So the first introduction of Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi uh, to Hindu culture, to Hindu thought, Hindu philosophy, uh, came through uh, listening to the song Celestial being read, the Bhagavad Gita in English. Uh, this profoundly moved um, uh, Gandhi. Gandhi then read The Light of Asia also. But uh, till he died, Mandira, uh, the song Celestial remained part of Gandhi's library. It remained part of Gandhi's heart. It remained part of Gandhi's head. Uh, mm. It became part of Gandhi's being. Mm. Uh, he would recommend this to his children, to his nephews, his nieces, to his colleagues, uh, to his friends, to anybody who wrote to him. And he would quote from the song Celestial. The mm. Bhagavad Gita was really, you know, the the defining text, uh, mm -hmm. the abiding, not just the defining, but also the abiding text for Gandhi. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And it was Edwin Arnold's translation uh, mm -hmm. that uh, profoundly influenced uh, Gandhi in the late 19th century, before he became the Mahatma. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, he becomes the Mahatma in the early part of the 20th century. We are now talking of a period when he was not the Mahatma. And mm -hmm. that's when he started reading uh, and uh, he read uh, perhaps the first two books concerning religion that Gandhi read uh, was one, the Song Celestial, which is the translation of the Bhagavad Gita. And the other one was the Light of Asia on the life of Buddha. And both mm -hmm. happened to be by Sir Edwin Arnold. So Gandhi became a great devotee, a great admirer uh, of Sir Edwin Arnold. So, but apart from that, if you look at it, I mean, in the sense that, um, you know, and this is what is wonderful with with what you had done earlier, you'd sort of, um, you know, with your Haksar book too, where there is, I mean, while, while Haksar is a very defining character in, the, in, in Indira Gandhi's life, but he's, you know, what in history would be a side character, you know what I mean? He's not, he's not your main uh, star, really. And Edwin Arnold is, let's say, even... I mean, is part of a character actor who has played a huge important, has played an important influential part in the lives of many Indian freedom fight, freedom fighters uh, and leaders. So you've got, um, you know, you while he's influenced Gandhi, also his light ratio also influences Nehru, it influences Ambedkar, it influences Shama Prakash Mukherjee also, right? So I just wanted to talk, ask you to talk about how um, in one way, while um, you know, while it is, it was essential reading for that generation to understand the Buddha. Um, can you also talk about how, in some ways, uh, how defining Buddhism really is to Indian nationalism, um, and and central to the idea of India, if you will, if you. Well, you know, the 19th century was a century of rediscovery of Buddhism, of Buddha and Buddhism. Uh, 
The rediscovery yeah. took place epigraphically by James Princip, deciphering the Brahmi script of the Ashokan inscriptions. Mm -hmm. uh, it uh, was rediscovered archaeologically by mm -hmm. Alexander Cullingham uh, through his excavations in Bodhgaya, uh, Sarnath, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Barhut, various places. Mm. Uh, and it was discovered uh, through literary sources. And mm. these literary sources happened to be Pali texts translated into English, Chinese texts mm. uh, translated into English, and some Japanese texts uh, mm. translated into English. So it was an epigraphical, archaeological, textual rediscovery of who Buddha was and what Buddhism was. And this mm. took place between 1820 uh, and 1880. Mm. Uh, the Light of Asia was written in 1879. It mm. came out in July 1879. It became an instant hit to use today's language. It went viral. Yeah. Uh, it went viral in England. It went viral in America. It went viral in Europe. Uh, and it got translated into 30 languages, you know, mm. in the first 15, 20 years. It got translated into almost all European languages. It got translated mm. into almost all uh, Asian languages, Chinese, mm. Japanese, Korean, Thai, uh, Khmer. Mm. Uh, and it got translated into all Indian languages. Now, mm. the, the first translation of the Light of Asia into an Indian language was in 1885. Uh, it was translated into Bengali uh, mm. as Buddha Charita. Uh, mm. And this translation profoundly moved Ramakrishna, Sri Ramakrishna. Mm. Uh, and it also became uh, a, a, great, um, uh, a great text for Swami Vivekananda. Uh, mm. Vivekananda is, in fact, uh, if you look at Vivekananda's lectures that he gives in America mm. uh, you know, uh, after 1893, uh, if you look at all the lectures he gives, and you know, he talks very frequently of Buddhism, very mm. frequently of Buddha, and very mm. frequently of the light of Asia. You know, that's how, yeah. uh, you know, he he, he first was introduced uh, to the life of um, the Buddha. Then, of course, it gets translated into Marathi, Telugu, Tamil, Malayalam, and all other Indian languages. Uh, so, you know, Vivekananda really is the first you know, Indian figure uh, who really popularizes uh, the light of Asia. And then, of course, you have Gandhi and then um, Ambedkar, you know, who, yeah. uh, who was, um, uh, who, who reinterpreted the life of the Buddha in a completely different way than Vivekananda mm. and Gandhi and Nehru. We can, we mm. can discuss that. Yeah. Uh, but, um, and of course, there was another great uh, scholar, Mandira, uh, whose name we have forgotten today, uh, but who had a profound influence on Ambedkar's thinking uh, on Buddha, and that was Dharmanand Kosambi. Yeah. Uh, Dharmanand Kosambi was perhaps India's greatest scholar of Pali. Uh, and um, Dharmanand Kosambi uh, uh, discovered the light of Asia in its Marathi translation. Uh, you know, it was translated into Marathi in 1894. Uh, and uh, that's how uh, Dharmanand Kosambi became aware. And that's what uh, Dharmanand Kosambi writes, that he was drawn to Buddha and drawn to the life of Buddha and Buddhism after reading the Light of Asia. He didn't read the Light of Asia in English uh, like mm -hmm. Gandhi did and Nehru did and Vivekananda did, but he read the Light of Asia in Marathi. 
and that's how he became you know the great scholar of pali and great scholar of buddhism and then he went on to have an influence uh, on mm. uh, on ambedkar so you know it, uh, it 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 impacted various people literary personalities it affected it influenced scientists it influenced politicians uh, it influenced musicians and the reason is very simple mandira uh, it, it it became viral it became a phenomenon and it became a sensation because it dealt with the life of the buddha and the buddha mm. became a cult figure the buddha became uh, somebody who everybody was looking up to mm. buddha was not a religious figure uh, buddha mm. was a spiritual as an ethical figure and buddha mm. never said that i am god uh, yeah. and that appealed to a lot of people uh, people were looking for a system of morality people were looking for a system of ethics uh, buddha was only a margadata he was not a moksha data mm. uh, and you know that i think was what made christians embrace buddha muslims embrace buddha hindus mm. embrace buddha uh, so buddha became he was not a religion he was not a religious figure he was not seen as he never said i am god uh, yeah. you know, uh, buddha said that be your own light and all this came through uh, the the life of the buddha which edwin arnold had captured in beautiful poetry and i mm. think that's the reason why this poem became the phenomenon it became because mm. it dealt with the life of a person uh, in whom uh, there was worldwide interest Mm. in 1850 nobody knew of buddha exactly except yeah. maybe you know 10 15 people uh, yeah. that, uh, nobody knew of who buddha was mm. but by 1900 uh, mm. i would say there was a buddha mania yeah you know uh, there was a decline in uh, the role of the church uh, there was mm. growing uh, atheism there was growing uh, disillusionment and disenchantment Uh, with organized christianity yeah uh, and people saw in buddha as an alternative you know he is somebody uh, you know who teaches us ethics who teaches us morality you know mm. um, so i think that's what made the poem uh, the hit that it became it was a super hit uh, and that's why people across the disciplines whether they were writers poets authors scientists musicians uh, across and in all countries i i i can't think of one country uh, in my book i have discussed country yeah. country right, i can't yeah. think of one country where um, uh, buddha didn't have an impact or buddha didn't have an influence so i could ask you you know one of the things of course you've talked about is but um you said apart from that it also has it has an interesting link to india and indian cinema So, uh, Light of Asia, which became a film with Himanshu Rai, Rai is the first Indo-German production, um, and was the first sort of feature film in some ways in uh, this thing with great romance and things like that. So, can you talk about that? And then, can I ask you to talk about the Honolulu connection? Well, you know, uh, yes, it was made into film in 1925. It was yeah. an it was an Indo-German film. Yeah, uh, it was made in English. It was made in German, and it was made in Hindi. It was called yeah. Sanyas in Hindi. Sanyas, uh, yeah. one of the earliest uh, Hindi films. 
starring yeah. Himanshu Rai, uh, you know, yeah. who was the Amitabh Bachchan of his day, uh, and exactly. Rita Devi, uh, you know, who was uh, maybe you know the uh, the Aishwarya Rai of her day. Uh, this is yeah. Yeah. 1925 when the, the yeah. It, the film was made in German, Der Lucht die ASEAN, which is the light of Asia. Uh, it, was, uh, it was also made in English, the light of Asia, and it was made in Hindi, uh, Prem mm. Sanyas. And uh, uh, it then, you know, uh, it influenced Rabindranath Tagore. And, you know, Tagore yeah. actually, uh, you know, has, has, po has a poem uh, on Buddha. Uh, Tagore was profoundly moved by Buddha, the Tagore family. Mm. Uh, was yes. a, was was a Hindu family, uh, but were profoundly, um, you know, Buddha followers. Uh, and um, Tagore, uh, you know, uh, writes poetry on the life of the Buddha. His nephew, Abhinandranath Tagore, you know, one of the great painters of uh, India of the 20th century, uh, takes up the light of Asia in his themes. So mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the the Edwin Arnold's work. Uh, not only gets into film, uh, but also becomes part of the poetry tradition in India. Uh, and then it becomes part of the artistic tradition. You know, it becomes part of painting and so on and so forth. You know, uh, a very interesting story I discovered, which, uh, you know, will, will, will uh, intrigue uh, you and others, that, you know, India's first Nobel Prize in science uh, was won by C.V. Raman. Yeah, great yeah. Indian physicist. And when mm. Raman accepted the Nobel Prize in Stockholm in December 1930, uh, he said, I have been influenced by three books in my life. The first book was by a German physicist called mm. Helmholtz. Uh, it's natural that a physics book would influence a physicist. The second book was Euclid's Geometry, you know, which mm. is a foundational yeah. text for geometry. And the third, he said, was the light of Asia, Ledwin uh, 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 Arnold's light of Asia. And then he goes on to say, uh, when he's accepting the Nobel Pr Prize for Physics in December of 1930, he goes on to say that I learned from the poem and I learned from the life of the Buddha, the values and virtues of compassion, of tolerance, mm -hmm. uh, of uh, understanding, uh, of, um, you know, being your own uh, searcher for truth uh, and ultimately also of the value of renunciation. And this mm. is a scientist. Huh? This is not a, this is not a pol political figure. It's not an author. It's not a poet. Uh, it's a scientist who's, you know, probably the greatest Indian scientist we have had. Mm. He, he won the Nobel Prize for work he did in Kolkata. Mm. Uh, he didn't do get his Nobel Prize for uh, work that he did in America or in England. Yes. There have been Indians yes. who got Nobel Prize yes. for work yes. done in, in America. But here was a man who was working in Calcutta in the 1920s. Mm. Uh, and he gets the Nobel Prize in 1930. And he, when he accepts mm. the Nobel Prize, says that one of the three books that have influenced me the most uh, was The Light of Asia. So it's extraordinary. You know, it's not just Gandhi, Vivekananda, Nehru, Tagore and others. Uh, but it's also people like uh, C.V. Raman and, you know, other mm. other personalities who are quite far removed uh, from the world of literature, world of art, world of music, you know, uh, who are deeply mm. immersed in science. But yet uh, they were drawn uh, to this poem. Uh, and I think they were drawn to this poem because they were drawn to the subject of the poem. Uh, they were drawn yeah. uh, to the life of the Buddha, you know. Mm. Mm. 
So, okay, now can I talk about a different thing? You know, when you look at Light of Asia, it's a book which is a discovery, of course, when it gets translated into Indian languages, it gets, it becomes a discovery of sorts for Indians also to look at the Buddha, right? Uh, but at this moment where, um, and I'm gonna put it into geo-strategy terms, uh, Buddhist, Buddhism is much more now than just about uh, philosophy and religion. It's also very much, at the heart of um, a reach out um, diplomatically, right? Um, it's at the heart of the China Belt and Road. Um, it is at the heart of our, um, our reach out to Look East. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about that. Essentially, where, how do you see Buddhism um, as now the fundamental reach out and cementer of, of of, of modern, or, you know, at the center of modern geostrategy in a way. Well, um, you know, um, um, you know, um, Vivekananda, Tagore, Gandhi, Nehru all believed uh, and all were drawn to Buddha, the spiritual figure, uh, Buddha, hmm. the cultural figure, Buddha, the figure of philosophy, uh, hmm. Buddha, the figure of ethics. And hmm. Nehru, of course, you know, saw in Buddha not only the greatest. Indian uh, at that time. Of course, he was born in Nepal, in Lumbini, yeah, but you know, yeah. the greatest subcontinental. Uh, and um, uh, he saw, and he saw the fact that while uh, while Buddhism had virtually been eliminated in India, uh, Buddhism defined Ceylon, it defined Burma, it defined Thailand, it defined Korea, it defined mm. Japan, it defined China in many ways. Mm. It defined, of course, mm. Tibet, yeah. uh, Mongolia. Uh, so you know, um, for Nehru, uh, Buddha was a you know was a trans-Indian figure, uh, mm -hmm. a figure that you know uh, was an instrument of soft power. He was yeah. an instrument of diplomacy, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, therefore, in fact, if you look at the two symbols uh, of yeah. uh, the modern Indian nation-state, uh, you know, the the national symbol uh, is the four lions. If you see any government. Yeah document you will see you'll see only three lines but it's actually there's a fourth lion at the back uh, and this is the lion capital of ashoka at sarnath yeah. and if you yeah. look at the indian flag uh, in the middle of the indian flag you will find a chakra with 24 spokes and this is the dharma chakra mm. you know again coming from the first sermon uh, of the buddha at sarnath so mm. uh, nehru was was really steeped uh, in not in Buddhism, but uh, Nehru was steeped in the life of the Buddha uh, yes. and in the life of Ashoka. And Ashoka particularly held great uh, fascination uh, for for Nehru. And so therefore Nehru uh, and many others of his generation saw Buddha uh, and saw in Buddha uh, not just uh, values that were relevant to India, but values that left the Indian shores uh, and influenced mm -hmm. Central Asia, Afghanistan, for example, yeah. uh, was yeah. one day all Buddhist. Once upon a time, yeah. all Buddhist. Exactly. Uh, influenced yeah. Central Asia, it influenced East Asia, and so on. So, um, yes, I mean, there was this, uh, and largely, largely, uh, most of us look upon Buddha. Uh, you know, uh, as a as a figure of contemplation, uh, as a as a figure of meditation, 
uh, as a figure that you know uh, has has taken Indian culture uh, to other countries. For example, the world's largest Buddhist monument is in Indonesia. Uh, the Borobudur, you know, is uh, the largest uh, Buddhist monument. It's in Indonesia. Angkor Wat in Cambodia mm. is a huge, yes. sprawling mm. Buddhist complex, which was originally Hindu, of course. Mm. So, but Ambedkar was different. Ambedkar did mm. not believe in the ethical, social, you know, uh, contemplative, speculative, philosophical, cultural. Yeah. Buddha. Uh, Ambedkar believed in the political Buddha. Uh, uh, Ambedkar believed that Buddha was a social radical uh, mm. that challenged the caste system. He challenged mm. caste prejudices and caste orthodoxy. Mm. Uh, Dharmanand Kosambi, uh, you know, was, was part of this tradition. Uh, mm. And many others uh, who came to Buddha in the translation of the light of Asia. Sri Narayana mm. for example, in Kerala. Mm. Uh, and so uh, uh, the translation of the light of Asia, the light of Asia in English had a lot of literary value, but the light of Asia in its Hindi, uh, Tamil, Malayalam, Marathi, uh, Punjabi, Bengali <coughs> translations had a lot of social value uh, because mm -hmm. it inspired social movements, it inspired social reformers and ultimately, of course, uh, Ambedkar, and you know, we are this festival is being held in Nagpur, uh, yes. you know, on the 14th of October 1956. Uh, uh, Dr. Ambedkar, and uh, over a lack of his followers, formally embraced Buddhism. And yes. you know, we talk of Hinayana Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, uh, but Ambedkar represented a completely new school of thought, which is now mm. called Navayana Buddhism. Mm. Um, so, uh, there is the cultural Buddha, right? Mm. There is the philosophical Buddha uh, to which Gandhi, Nehru, Tagore, Vivekananda uh, subscribe. And there is the political Buddha. There is the social revolutionary Buddha uh, who becomes an inspiration for people like Narana Guru uh, and of course the greatest uh, reformer, uh, Dr. Ambedkar himself. Mm. So, you know, it's a, it's a complex story. Uh, it's uh, it's a it's a very complex story, but uh, I try to bring this out, Mandira, because uh, most of us, if you talk to most people in the world, they associate Buddha with meditation, they associate yes. Buddha with contemplation, uh, they associate Buddha with you know some mantras and you know some ritual and some chanting and so on, but there is this other dimension of Buddha. Uh, that Buddha who fought against caste, uh, Buddha who fought, fought against the killing of animals, you know, yeah. who was a social reformer. And that we should not forget, uh, played a great role in the Indian nationalist movement uh, through uh, many figures uh, of whom perhaps um, undoubtedly uh, the, the most famous and the most influential uh, was Dr. Ambedkar. But interestingly, apart from all this, Buddha was also was one of the first few who brought in uh, gender and women into the Sangha. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the oldest literary texts 
texts that we find is of of of, of women nuns of Buddha. So well, you know, I was, must say that Buddha was a reluctant gender. He was, yes, of course, he was there a is that gender. Uh, you know, justice yes. man because he did not want women in the sangha, uh, and it is actually Ananda. You know, Ananda, who, is, is, who his makes great that, yeah. disciple. Uh, and uh, you know, it is his, um, uh, you know, his aunt, as, who and the stepmother who wants to become part of the sangha. Mm -hmm. And finally, it is Ananda who convinces the Buddha. But Buddha, by instinct, was not a gender justice man. Not enough. Yeah, but, you know, he yeah, was a but, caste reformer. He opened the sangha. Uh, to uh, different castes. Uh, he did not believe in caste hierarchy, did not believe in uh, caste uh, prejudice, caste orthodoxy. But to say that Buddha was a gender justice man uh, is, is carrying... I, 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 didn't, carrying I didn't say he was... was I, I didn't say I, he was I would agree with that because... Uh, I said that he opened the Sangha at that point of time, which was... He opened it up. He opened yeah. it up. He yeah. opened the Sangha to, British, uh, to Buddhist nuns uh, and, uh, you know, the earliest... Poetry of the Buddhist nuns, which you read if you read now, it's so beautiful and so powerful. It's called the Terigatha. I know. Uh, you know these are the stories of, of, of Buddhist nuns. Uh, so uh, yes, but one should never forget that Buddha came to this somewhat reluctantly. Uh, he had to be persuaded by Ananda. Uh, tradition yeah. tells us. Yeah. But, but he had to be persuaded by Ananda. True, he did. But you know, it was you know, if, if you read the Terahatha, you see that there were you know there was Amrapali, there was a woman who was a courtesan. There were different kinds of women. You find a lot of donations by women, uh, women, um, you know, uh, Buddhism, Buddhist nun carry across aspects of the Buddha when they trade and this thing. So there is that aspect. I'm not suggesting that he was gender just in and he was 21st century. See the paradox, the paradox Mandira, paradox Mandira, Buddha did not preach Buddhism. Yeah, that's true. Buddha, Buddha did not become Buddha by following a Buddha. Yeah, yeah. You know, Buddha became Buddha by experimentation, hmm. uh, by making mistakes, hmm. by learning from those mistakes. And he tells Ananda at the end, be your own light, mm. be your own searcher. That's why Dr. Ambedkar said it beautifully. Ambed Dr. Ambedkar said in his book, Buddha and his Dhamma, which was published after Dr. Ambedkar's death in 1956, that Buddha was a moksha, not a mokshadatta, he was a margadatta. He showed yeah. the way. Uh, mm. He didn't say, I am God. This Buddhism thing comes after Ashoka. You know, it comes... Yeah. Yeah. Years Maybe, or yeah, years yeah, yeah. after Buddha passes away. So Buddhism comes later. Uh, and that's why, you know, I, when people ask me, uh, you know, uh, why I wrote this book and, you know, what Buddha means, I always distinguish between Buddhism and Buddha, you know. Mm -hmm. For me, uh, Buddhism is as ritualistic. Uh, Buddhism is as ritualistic, uh, as oppressive, uh, uh, you know, as... Uh, dangerous as organized Hinduism, organized mm. Islam, organized mm. Christianity, uh, organized Zoroastrianism. You know, mm. organization is it can be really oppressive. Uh, and at times, as we have seen from the example of Sri Lanka, uh, yeah. you know, it can, oh, it can be violent. But I distinguish Buddha from Buddhism. 
And yeah. I tell my Sri Lankan friends, uh, Sri Lanka needs more Buddha and less Buddhism. Less Buddhism. Uh, you know, uh, just like we in India, uh, you know, we uh, we need more of, uh, uh, you know, our philosophy, more of our uh, tradition rather than, uh, you know, uh, ism, the ism, you know, uh, and, and then we get caught into the organized form of religion and, and, and texts and so on and so forth. So I always distinguish between Buddha and Buddhism. And I think, uh, and that's the reason perhaps why this poem became uh, so popular and so influential that it, it deals with the humanity of Buddha. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. It doesn't deal with the divinity of Buddha. Uh, mm. It deals with the humanity of Buddha. Uh, so I think, you see, uh, and I've always wondered, take Sri Lanka, take Myanmar, take Thailand. Mm. Uh, these are Buddhist societies, but these are also societies where you have a lot of social violence. Mm. Mm. You mm. know, these are not peaceful societies. And our, but our traditional images of Buddha, uh, you know, the man who preached peace, tolerance, compassion, and so on. In fact, yesterday somebody came to meet me, uh, you know, a scholar, uh, and he, he put it very well. He said, you know, the two pillars of Hinduism, Ahimsa, uh, comes from Jainism, and Karuna, uh, uh, compassion, comes from Buddhism. It's very yes. true, you know, uh, yeah. the, the interplay of Hindu tradition, Jain tradition, Buddhist tradition. That's why I don't call Jainism, uh, you can't, there's no such thing as Jainism. There's no such thing as Buddhism. There's no such thing as Hinduism. Ism. But there's a Hindu thought. There's a Buddhist thought. There is a, there is a Jain thought. And to give you a to give you a very interesting example, I don't know how many people think about this. Chandragupta Maurya, hmm. who is now very much in the news, uh, you know, thanks to Yogi Adityanath. Hmm. Chandragupta Maurya was a Jain. Hmm. He belongs to the Jain tradition. Hmm. Right? Chandragupta Maurya's son, Bindusara, uh, belonged to what are called the Ajivikas. It yeah. was a sect that was roughly contemporaneous with uh, Vardhamana Mahavira uh, and uh, Gautama Buddha. And it was propagated by a person in Magadha called Makkala mm. Gosala. Mm. Uh, and so Bindusara, the son of a Jain father, uh, you know, uh, owes allegiance to this Ajivika sect. And Ashoka, who is Bindusara's son, mm. Uh, becomes a Buddhist. I mean, you know, he's the greatest figure of Buddhism. So just imagine, grandfather Jain, mm. father Ajivika with sympathy towards Brahminism, uh, and the, uh, the grandson becomes a Buddhist. And this yeah. is what Indian tradition is all about, you know. It's a confluence of different... They were not religions. See, the concept of religion is a Western concept. It's not an mm. Indian concept. The Indian concept is, is one of tradition. It's one of philosophy. It's one of multiple streams. And that's what mm. Buddha talked about, you know. Mm. So yeah. I think that's why, you know, one, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply skeptical of organized religion. You know? mm. Mm. Um, so, you know, since you've talked about this, and I, this is something I wanted to bring up, um, uh, 
apart from the thing, of course, I mean, you know, when you, when you're talking about just thought, if you look at just excavationally or this thing, there are you find that Buddhist where you find Buddhist remains, you also find Jain remains, you find Hindu remains. It's almost contemporary at that point of time. So the idea of uh, a decline in Buddhism, which is where you're, you know, which was very much, um, you know, post Cunningham, where you sort of you're putting one against the other. It also comes back to history and comes back to interpretation of Western thought. But that apart, I wanted to talk to you about, um, you know, in some ways a confluence. I mean, together and with and um, and let's say a peaceful way of sorting out a dispute. So when you're talking about and which is one of the most landmark missing, where you look at both Gaya uh, and Arnold is a big supporter of absolutely not only a supporter in fact it was it was the poem it was the, the yeah. light of asia and it was arnold's visit to bodhgaya in yeah. february of 1886 that launches the bodhgaya movement yeah uh, and you know that bodhgaya agitation was very much like the ayodhya agitation ayodhya agitation you know, yes ayodhya, the hindus were fighting over control over ram janmabhumi uh, and uh, in the bodhgaya agitation which lasted almost 68 years, 69 years, mm. uh, the Buddhist community uh, was uh, fighting over uh, the control over the place of en enlightenment at yeah. Bodhgaya, you know, which was then under the control of the Shaivite priests. So uh, Edwin mm. Arnold plays a crucial role uh, mm. in launching this agitation for mm. the control of Bodhgaya, the Mahabodhi temple in Bodhgaya. Yeah the site of Buddha's enlightenment yeah. uh, to be controlled by the Buddhists. And it's only in May 1953 that this issue is resolved. And it is resolved in the typical Indian way, a 50-50 way. You know, India is yeah. the best 50-50 country. So it was yeah. controlled 50% by Hindus uh, and 50% by Buddhists uh, in a management committee. Uh, but yes, but it was a peaceful resolution. Yeah. It you know it lasted fifty three plus fifteen sixty eight years. Uh, mm. It it involved Gandhi. It involved uh, Rajendra Prasad. It involved many people. Tagore, Vivekananda also was involved in the initial years. Finally, it was it was resolved. Uh, it was a peaceful resolution. Uh, and today, the Mahabodhi Temple in Bodh Gaya uh, is under the control of a management committee, uh, mm. half of whom uh, are Hindus. And another half uh, are Buddhists. Uh, so both Gaya, the both Gaya agitation uh, is a very important landmark uh, in India's political history. Mm. Uh, and um, the rediscovery of both Gaya, the rediscovery of Sarnath, uh, you know, these are all uh, these are all recent rediscoveries. Yeah, know? as you said, um, Buddhism had virtually disappeared from India. Yeah, you know it's a living presence in the rest of Asia, but in India, Buddha is a living presence. Buddhism is not a living presence. Mm. In every Indian home, you'll find this. I'm sure in your yeah. study also, you'll have some yeah. painting or some you know stone yeah. icon. You know, every Indian home will have this. Uh, mm. But Buddhism is not. Buddhism has has vanished mm. from India, except mm. you know, in small pockets. Mm. Um, so, 
the Bodh Gaya rediscovery of Bodh Gaya, rediscovery of Sarnath, uh, and there are other things that um, Takshila in Pakistan, yeah. there were yeah. the great excavations that took place in Takshila. Uh, we are still not yet completely uh, finished rediscovering uh, our mm. ancient Buddhist heritage, you know, mm. yeah. uh, and uh, 500 years, 600 years, uh, Buddhist thought and Buddhist philosophy uh, very much defined uh, Indian civilization, Indian culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the heart of trade, for example. It yes, was absolutely. Was... And Buddhism went from India, it went to Central Asia. From Central yeah. Asia, it went to China. From China, mm -hmm. it went to Japan. It went to Korea. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then, of course, it went to Sri Lanka. It went to Burma and other places. Mm -hmm. It went to Russia. There are parts of yeah. Russia which yeah. are Buddhist. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, see, what happened was Buddhism over a period of time got appropriated by the Brahmins. Uh, you yeah. know, by, this, by the 7th century, 8th century, Buddha becomes the ninth avatar of Vishnu. You know, he's, yeah. he becomes part of the Hindu tradition. He, take, he becomes the ninth avatar of Vishnu. And by the beginning of the, the 12th century or 13th century, uh, the clash with Islam, uh, you know, the Bhaktiar Khilji and all these people, mm. uh, you know, that, that gives the final sort of finishing yeah. to the decline of Buddhism. But the decline mm. of Buddhism had started much before Islam came to India. Yeah, It starts in the 5th century or thereabouts because it mm. gets appropriated uh, by yeah. the Brahminical tradition, you know. Mm. So Buddha becomes, for example, the ninth avatar of Vishnu. Mm. So, yeah. And then I wanted to talk to you about um, other aspects too. I wanted to, you know, so while there is, you know, and you talk about Geet Govindam um, and, you know, how um, they the thing, but um, I wanted to talk to you really about also the other aspects of Light of Asia and Buddhism. So, you know, um, for example, I think you said Arthur Conan Doyle is influenced by uh, the Buddha and that you find that in a lot of Sherlock Holmes story. So can we talk about that? And can we talk about the mystery uh, of that is that still remains that you still haven't been able to solve about uh, about Arnold and Laldeed? Arnold and? Laldeed. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are many things about Arnold, uh, you know, which remain still, uh, still mystery, still a mystery. Uh, there, you know, there are some believe there are some who believe that uh, Arnold translated some Kashmiri works uh, into uh, into English. I mean, uh, Kashmiri work and Sanskrit into into English. Uh, but uh, you know, the evidence for that uh, I have not been able to conclusively establish. Uh, but interestingly, in the process of writing this book, uh, I discovered uh, Edwin Arnold's great grandchildren who are living in Bhopal. Uh, you know, uh, Edwin Arnold's son, Channing Arnold, came to Bhopal. He was a tutor to the royal family of Bhopal. He married a Muslim lady, uh, had two children by her. He was unfortunately murdered in a property dispute in UP in 1937. Mm -hmm. So his daughter got adopted by the Christians and his son was raised by a Muslim family in Bhopal. The daughter went away to England. The son stayed back in um, in in Bhopal, and I discovered um, uh, 
wonderful, you know, uh, five, six grand, great grandchildren of Edwin Arnold. I know. Names like uh, Muhammad Mickey Arnold, uh, Fawzia Arnold Siddiqui. I mean, they're wonderfully syncretic names, you know, uh, and they were the great grandchildren of, uh, of Edwin Arnold who were le leading, you know, Indian lives. Uh, in Bhopal. Also, of course, he also has some grand, great grandchildren from uh, from that lady who went away and was adopted by Christian missionaries. And I discovered them in Thailand and, and Australia and the UK. But what I found most interesting was Edwin Arnold's great grandchildren uh, in, uh, in Bhopal. Uh, and there were four or five of them. Uh, and in my book, actually, uh, I, am uh, I was able to in fact, get in touch with them. Uh, and uh, I must read out to you, uh, you know, uh, the, the names uh, which I discovered. Firoz Arnold. I know, they're lovely names. Yeah, Nahid Arnold Ali. Mm -hmm. That is another one. I already told you about Farzana Ahmed Siddiqui. Yeah. Fawzia Arnold Raza. And then, mm -hmm. of course, there is Mohammed. Michael Arnold. Arnold you know, yeah, yeah. Photograph, Mohammed Michael yeah, Arnold. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. He is a great grandchild, great grandson of Edwin Arnold. So, I mean, that's a fitting closure to the book uh, that True. a man who came to India in 1857 as principal of, Princi of Pune College, picked up Sanskrit, picked up Marathi, uh, became one of the greatest popularizers of Indian literature, Sanskrit literature in the late 19th century, uh, would, would I would discover his great-grandchildren very accidentally uh, in uh, Bhopal. Yeah, yeah. And what I think is also very interesting is, is that his grand, you know, you talked about his son, uh, where you say you talk about his Bhopal connection, but you don't talk about his Burma connection, where he is actually at the heart of a yes. very, very... Uh, a very uh, landmark case and about freedom of expression. Well, you know, um, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, obviously Ar Arnold had a lot of influence, uh, you know, and there were people in England uh, who became Buddhists uh, after, you know, after reading this poem. Uh, yeah. And there were people in Sri Lanka, of course, that time it was called Ceylon. Uh, it became very popular in Burma, which is today Myanmar. Yeah. And his son, Channing Arnold, actually goes off to uh, to Burma and he becomes a journalist, mm. gets involved in some great cases against the British Raj, is a rebel, you know, against the British Raj. Uh, mm. And then, of course, he comes to India, becomes tutor to the Bhopal royal family. And I've discussed that, as I mentioned to you. So, you know, mm. it's a very interesting life, Mandira. Uh, yeah. Here was Ben Arnold, a great Victorian, a great believer in British rule in India. Uh, but at the same time, uh, uh, somebody who loved Indian literature, Indian poetry, Indian music, Indian painting, uh, mm -hmm. translated the Mahabharata, Gita Govinda, Hitopadesha, mm -hmm. Bhagavad Gita. Mm -hmm. He also had translations from Persian. He had translations from Arabic. He had translations from Turkish. So mm -hmm. he knew, you know, multiple languages. He must have known about mm -hmm. 12 or 13 languages. Yeah. 
wrote Seen books. In the last 10 years of his life, he married a Japanese woman and yeah. he became very fluent in Japanese. And, you know, he became a very important voice uh, in the Anglo-German, as uh, Anglo-Japanese uh, connection. So he was an unusual Britisher. I mean, you know, we tend to dismiss these Britishers as colonialists. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, they were also scholars. They were also yeah. genuinely interested uh, in uh, in India, uh, you know, Indian botany, uh, Indian science. Um, uh, he introduced, for example, he was the first to introduce science education uh, in Pune College. Uh, okay. You know, and uh, he, he said, yes, knowledge of Sanskrit, uh, very important, but also knowledge of science is very important. Yeah. Now, we're talking mm -hmm. of 1860. Huh? Yes. I mean, we're not talking of the 21st century. We're talking of True. 1860. And yeah. here's a man, yeah. you know, saying that we must, uh, Indians must learn, must learn science. Uh, mm -hmm. Wanted women to be educated, you know, wanted mm -hmm. non-Brahmins. Uh, in the 19th century, education was open only to Brahmins. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it was very caste, um, uh, you know, written uh, society. Mm. And he, mm. he was arguing for opening up of colleges and schools to people of different castes, uh, to mm. to girls, having more girls schools. So he's a very unusual figure. But at the same time, he was not a, he was not somebody who was advocating independence for India. No. Yeah, no. He, was, he was not sympathetic uh, uh, or a supporter of political independence for India. But at the same time, he was the great champion of the cultural heritage of India, whether it was an yeah. Islamic heritage, whether it was a Hindu heritage, most importantly, of course, the Buddhist heritage. So I'm going to, you know, before we wrap up, I'm going to ask you to just read one bit, which is about the letter and what connects Light of Asia with Nehru and Churchill. Because I think that's a really interesting. Well, interesting. you know, this is very interesting, and this is one of the reasons why I actually wrote this book, although it was in in, in my mind. You know, when I was going through the letters of Nehru, uh, you know, two years ago, I suddenly discovered two letters from Winston Churchill to him, written in early mm -hmm. 1955. Uh, one letter was written to him in April, and another one written to him in June. Uh, and here is Winston Churchill, the outgoing British Prime Minister, writing to an Indian Prime Minister whom he had put in jail uh, when he yeah. was Prime Minister, you know, in 1941, if you remember, uh, in 1942, actually, when the Quit India Movement starts. Yeah. Churchill was the Prime Minister of the UK and Nehru and others were imprisoned for almost two and a half years. Nehru spent 10 years of his life in jail. Uh, you know, out of 25 years before independence, he spent 10 years out of his life in jail. A large part of it was, a good part of it was thanks to Churchill. So Churchill writes to Nehru in 1955, you know, saying that I, one of my great uh, pleasures has been my association with you. You have a heavy responsibility. You carry the hopes and aspirations of millions of Indian. Remember the light of Asia. He ends up by saying, remember the light of Asia. Uh, and I found it extraordinary that a British prime minister would write to the Indian prime minister, not once, not but twice, uh, drawing reference to the light of Asia. Uh, and uh, then I discovered, of course, that uh, um, Churchill was a great, uh, you know, who was a reader. And Churchill was a great admirer of Rudyard Kipling. And Kipling, mm. uh, when he was in school, uh, had started a light of Asia society because he had been very... Uh, influenced and moved by reading Arnold's poem. Uh, 
and Nehru, for Nehru also, the light of Asia was a very important. He he carried that book with him whenever he went into jail, which was very frequently. Yeah, uh, and that book remained with him as part of you know his reading and as part of his being and so on. Uh, and so I, I found it extraordinary that a British prime minister would write to an Indian prime minister uh, and draw reference to the light of Asia. <laughs> and th both those letters, I was lucky and I was able to access both those letters. And I've reproduced those letters in the book. So that's a that's an interesting sidelight uh, to this yeah, book. Yeah, you know, story. Uh, that uh, the light of Asia brought Churchill and the jailer yeah. and the jailed together. Uh, they were brought together by the light of Asia. Yeah. So thank you so much. I think we've we've. Thank you, Mandira. It was a it was forty minutes, and we've gone over. Thank but you. Thank I you. It was wonderful. It was a wonderful short time, but I hope uh, that's okay with uh, the Orange Literature Festival. Yes. So, Saurabh. Sorry. Yeah. Wrap up. Wrap up. Thank you so much, ma'am. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much, ma'am. At the outset, I would like to thank Mr. Jairam Ramesh, sir, and Ms. Mandira Nair, ma'am, for enlightening us today. We wish we get to hear you both again and be equally enlightened as we all are today. I can personally say that, sir, after having your conversation, after actually keenly observing your conversation and the facts you told about your book, I am personally drawn to the light of Asia and the first thing I'll be doing after this session would be ordering this book and reading it today only. Thank you so much sir for enlightening us with those words of wisdom and thank you so much Ms. Mandira Nair ma'am for moderating this particular session with such a graceful smile and such a grace personality. And for my dear massive audience, I'm sure that after witnessing this conversation, you all are taking home an enriched version of yourself just as I will. As it is rightly said that goodbyes are not forever, nor they are the end. They simply mean that we'll meet again. Thank you for joining us today. Until I see you again. This is Saurabh Jarial signing off. Keep watching Orange City Literature Fest. Let's celebrate the love of literature with this amazing fest. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you Saurabh. Thank you, Mandira. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Vision Beyond.